Side Hustle Show 258, 20% cash on cash in mobile home parks. This is the real estate side hustle you probably hadn't considered. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because investing in yourself always has a positive ROI. Happy Thanksgiving if you're tuning in from the US of A and happy Thursday if you're not. Great show for you today on a super niche real estate investing side hustle, but one that's turned into a full-time business and more for my guest. I'm talking about buying mobile home parks and the unique advantages of doing so over other forms of real estate. And to school me on, the subject is Jefferson Lilly from ParkStreetPartners.com. This all started as a side hustle for Jefferson, but now he and his firm own and manage dozens of mobile home parks coast to coast worth over $50 million. It's crazy stuff. Stick around to hear what makes mobile home parks an attractive investment, the exact criteria Jefferson uses when evaluating new deals, and his most expensive mistake so far. Notes and links for this one, plus a free downloadable PDF highlight reel with all of Jefferson's top tips from this call are at SideHustleNation.com slash Jefferson. As your side hustle grows and takes on a life of its own, there's a tool you're going to want in your toolbox, and that's FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com is the affordable small business accounting solution that's built specifically for side hustlers and freelancers. I'd like to thank FreshBooks for sponsoring today's show and for helping thousands of entrepreneurs, myself included, get paid. And as a side hustle show listener, they're hooking you up with a 30-day completely free trial at FreshBooks.com slash side hustle. That's FreshBooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30-day free trial today. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Jefferson after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. But yeah, this is such a compelling niche for a couple of reasons. In no particular order, this is really the only real estate niche where supply is actually shrinking. If you invest in other niches, if you buy self-storage, if you buy into office, if you buy into single family houses, what have you, at least when times are good, they're always building more of that stuff. Mobile home parks benefit from being the only niche of real estate that, again, is shrinking. Pretty much every city and county nationwide has outlawed any new construction of mobile home parks. That's been an ongoing process over roughly the last 30 years. Okay. So best guess, last year there were something like 10 mobile home parks built nationwide. So basically it doesn't happen. That's on a base of about 50,000 mobile home parks. So plus 10 is insignificant. And best guess is that about 500 or 1% of that total, about 500 parks were plowed under last year and became some higher and better use. Sexy apartment building, shopping mall, office, self-storage, what have you. So Again, this niche actually has shrinking supply. So as your competition slowly but surely goes away, all those mobile homes with their occupants, they have to go somewhere. So they're going to infill into the remaining parks. So that kind of macro level supply and demand dynamic is a really tremendous tailwind to have. I'll mention just one other for now, basically down at the park level then, another thing that makes this such a great business is that almost all of our tenants, more than 90%, own their own mobile home. Now, the impact of that is that first, we don't have to maintain those homes. We don't own them. All those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs are not ours. Another dynamic there is that 
basically that it costs around $5,000 to move a mobile home, which frankly is more money than most mobile home residents have. So again, unlike apartment buildings, we've got both lower repair and maintenance, no proverbial leaky toilets, leaky roofs. And then secondly, we've got tenants that stay for a really long time. Most people move in and out of apartments about every two years, call it 50% turnover. Sure. With us, again, we don't own the homes. Even if a tenant leaves, they'll sell that home to the next occupant, typically through Craigslist. So really, in our world, the occupant is the home. It's not the person living in it. Somebody's going to be paying rent on that house so as to not lose the house somebody's gonna be paying rent on that house. So mobile homes have a useful life of probably 50 years. So our turnover is a lot closer to 2% than 50. We've got much more stable income, much lower turnover costs and lower repair and maintenance. Cause again, all of that is the dynamic of not owning the improvements. We just own the land and it's it's not that hard to pave some roads maybe every decade or so keep the grass cut do some sewer on stops sure but compared to regular real estate where probably 80% of a repair and maintenance budget goes into the improvements the stuff that sits on the land again we don't own hardly any of that and it's just not that expensive or that difficult to maintain okay. land okay so tenants own their own mobile homes, and then they pay you a fee to park them there, basically. Lot rent. Yeah. We think of this as a parking lot business. Okay. <laughs> so you call it lot rent. What's a typical lot rent? Oh, let's say across our portfolio, a little over 300 bucks, 310, 315, something like that. Okay. So 300 bucks and like how many of these do you fit on a property? Well, properties come in all different sizes. We own mobile home parks from as small as 20 pads, what we call them, or lots, Okay. up to, I believe our biggest is 277. So we own a total right now with the recent spate of acquisitions, we own a total of about 2,300 pads, and I believe we're at 22 parks so basically just right around 100 pads per park on average. But uh, again, the range is from 20 to uh, about 277. Okay. All right. You're selling me. You're convincing me on this stuff. It's kind of a hybrid between <laughs> kind of a, a land investment play and then a traditional rental play. You collect, I mean, because you, you got the monthly income coming in. I didn't realize. So I'm, I have like maybe a different vision in my head, like this $5,000 cost to move, I'm thinking of, I guess I'm thinking of like RVs, but like these things, they're, they're parked, they're not going anywhere. Right. Mobile homes are tied down. Those cash flows don't leave. Okay. <laughs> RVs are different. That's your traditional Winnebago or something, maybe a little nicer, obviously with an engine on it. And that might pull in for a night or a week and then drive off. Sure. In our world with mobile homes, these are 16 by 80 floor plans, most of them. So it's about 1,280 square feet, generally three or four bedroom with two baths in that nearly 1,300 square feet. That's bigger than my place. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I, I live in San Francisco in, in a place smaller <laughs> than that. 
Most of my tenants, yeah, live in a bigger home and a home with a dishwasher. We still don't have a dishwasher. We do our dishes by hand. But anyway, our world is that of mobile homes. Those get tied down with big augers that go down into the ground like three feet, and they get permanent utility hookups, obviously the gas, the electric, the water, the sewer. Okay. RVs really are more plug and play, and they're designed to be hooked up kind of quick and easy, like a garden hose sort of thing, or like plugging in a big electric stove, big plug just sort of into the side of an RV. Mobile homes, those cash flows, as we say, they get tied down. They don't leave. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. So 50,000 mobile home parks in the country. Yep. What's the turnover look like? Or how how are you actively seeking out these to go and buy? We do a couple of things. Brokers are, first and foremost, our best source of deals, typically pocket listings, things that they don't put up on LoopNet or other websites. So brokers give us most of our deal flow. We do also do outreach direct to park owners, send them a postcard, make a follow-up phone call, make another follow-up phone call, try and get them to sell their park to us. Okay. You're just finding those people through Google or through like county records? How are you finding those guys? Yeah, a combination thereof. Exactly. And then you can also, well, as you mentioned with Google and the yellow pages, you can get an initial list. You can then pour over a city. You wouldn't probably have time to do this nationwide, but if there's a certain metro or a couple metros that you're focusing on, you can then, again, just use Google Maps and literally look over every square mile of the city and just visually look for any additional mobile home parks that might not be on your list. Okay. Because, Nick, about half the parks we bought are not listed in the yellow pages. That means they're not in Google Maps. This is a very mom-and-pop business, and they generally have not done a lot of marketing, just basic stuff like, again, getting in the yellow pages getting in Google places. So you show up in in Google Maps. So yeah, you got to dig and scratch a bit. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's that initial outreach look like? Is it... Hey, I'm Jefferson. I'm a mobile home park investor guy. And have you ever thought about selling? What's that initial outreach look like? Yeah, postcards, you you would typically want to put like your own face on it and just make it clear you're not a broker. You're like them. You're a park owner yourself and you like their park, flatter them a little and just tell them I'd love to buy it. Even if now's not the right time, please keep my card, call me 
if and when it might be the right time to sell. So that's kind of a good non-corporate, much more personal way to outreach to someone, again, typically using a postcard. And then it's always good to make a follow-up phone call, okay. yeah. maybe within a week. Certain parts of the country better than others? Is it same like regular real estate in San Francisco? It's just prohibitive or is it like I'll buy anywhere? It does vary. There aren't any mobile home parks in San Francisco proper where I live. Sure. Anyway, long story short, most of the remaining parks are located in less valuable real estate. Obviously, if they're closer into a major metro, they've probably long ago been redeveloped into an office tower, a shopping mall, what have you. Sure, sure. So this is kind of a donut business, as I call it. We buy parks that ring a major city, roughly, say, figure out where the, the skyscrapers are, and you probably, in most cities, go 10 miles, maybe 15 miles in any direction from the real core of town, and that's where you find our properties. Okay. Yeah. And then oh, as far as geographies, we tend to like larger metros, say 100,000 people and up as long as the city's of that size and say as long as we're within five miles of a super walmart then that pretty much validates the market we will still run test ads but we can determine an awful lot just within 30 seconds just quickly pull it up look at the size of the metro look on google earth see how far the nearest super walmart is if it's a decent sized metro and again if we're within say five miles of that sort of big box retailer then we're almost certainly interested in running some test ads and moving forward. And if it's a park that's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, one stoplight town or no stoplight town, no super Walmart, that we're not interested in. Just because the population isn't going to be able to support this, this is kind of like a dying city. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. There aren't enough jobs. There isn't enough turnover. We don't need to have a booming Bay Area economy to do well. We just need to have something ideally 100,000 folks. And as long as it's stable employment and income, then we're going to do quite well. There'll be enough natural turnover, people coming and going. We'll be able to infill any vacant pads. We often bring in even brand new mobile homes. We expand the supply of affordable housing in that town. We fill vacant pads. Again, as long as the town is at least stable, we'll do well. We'll, we'll make our numbers and we'll be able to, as I said, expand the supply of affordable housing. It's a, it's a good win-win. Yeah. Now you just mentioned test ads. What role does that play in the process? So once we screen out deals that don't fit and get down to the ones that do by metro size, by proximity to a super Walmart, if then the price looks reasonable, that's kind of the other screen, is, is the seller willing to sell at a reasonable price? Yeah, well, okay. So, so what's a reasonable price? Like is just a multiple of you know the lot rent, or how do you say is that a good deal or not? It does vary a bit, but let's just say if the selling price is anywhere between seventy and ninety times the monthly lot rent, that would typically be a reasonable price. It then does depend again on some broader issues. How strong is the economy? What's the infrastructure like for that park? For instance, we so far at least with investor funds. I've done it differently with my own capital, my own parks. But with investor funds, we've so far only bought parks that are on city water and city sewer. So the park's infrastructure does play a role there and just how high the lot rents already are, how high they might go. There's some things that would swing that from, again, 70 to roughly 90 times 
monthly lot rent, but that'd be a decent range. Okay. And if it's above that, you're like, okay, this is probably not going to pencil out for me. We need to do a little more research and really see, you know, if it's a park then with particularly low lot rents, then okay, we can bump the rents up. And maybe for something that's where the lot rents are already 30% below market, then yeah, maybe paying 90 times that still works. It varies, but that's a good rough estimate. Okay. So that's, uh, I'm trying to do the math based on your $300 lot rent, your average 100 pads per park. So it's like that property is generating $30,000 worth of income every month. So that pencils out at a 70X multiple to a $2.1 million piece of property. And so you're going to break even, assuming zero expenses and all that stuff, like you're breaking even in, what is that, six or eight years or something. I guess if you want to run through it. <laughs> Do you look at that that way or like we get mortgages on the properties and Okay, well let's look at that like the, the kind of like the cash on cash. What would be a target return? Oh, let's just say 20% cash on cash. Really? Wow. So we buy properties again, it varies but we're going to throw out very rough middle of the bell curve terms here. So if you pay 70 to 90 times monthly lot rent let's say that would equate to about a 10 cap. So for a property that might earn $200,000, you'd pay 2 million for it. And then you're gonna have a mortgage, we'd put down say 500,000, we'd have a mortgage of what, a million and a half that would probably eat up, call it another 100,000 a month in debt service. So 200 NOI minus 100 to the bank would leave us with 100,000 in our pocket again, on a $500,000 down payment. So that's about 20% yeah. cash on cash. So that's a very rough, squishy, middle of the road. Could, <laughs> could be some exceptions, but just to give your, your listeners a general sense of it. So when you start there, Nick, when you start buying real estate at a 10 cap, with that sort of relatively normal 75% loan to value debt, depends a little on the amortization, but basically you're going to start at about a 15% cash on cash. If you make no improvements, if you can't infill, if you can't bill for water, if you can't raise rent, if you can't do anything, you can still have a 15% cash on cash, which isn't bad. We again do tend to infill, as I mentioned earlier, we'll bring in some homes, we'll submeter for water, that's a big thing that we do to help improve park profitability. We may bump rents a bit, but all of that, typically, again, starting at 15, you do those things and pretty much within six months, nine months, you, you should be at 20% cash on cash. Wow. Okay. I'm listening. So is it as simple as rolling up to the bank and being like, hey, I want to buy this $2 million mobile home park property. Would you would you lend me a million and a half? Or <laughs> Yep. That's it. That's the way I did my first park. It was not a park of that size, Okay. but that's the way I did my first park. It was in the greater Oklahoma City metro area. I called, I believe, 60 banks in Oklahoma, around Oklahoma City, you know, so somewhat proximate to the property. I got 58 no's. Okay. And I got two yeses. And all it takes is one. So, yeah. But that's basically it. There are two other good sources of capital. Seller carry is another good source of capital. And then when you're doing larger deals, like the one we've roughly sketched out at roughly a $2 million acquisition price, when you start getting to a million and a half in debt, and certainly $2 million in debt and up, that's a great market for CMBS financing, or even to get, if it's a very, if it's a nicer park, 
You can even get some agency debt, both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the GSEs, do write mortgages on mobile home parks. Sorry, what's CMBS? Collateralized mortgage-backed securities. So what they do there is they take our mortgage. It would be really like an investment company. I believe these guys are generally called DUS lenders, like delegated underwriting support, something. Okay. But what they do is they'll actually say, give us a million and a half bucks. We write the mortgage with them. They take that million and a half mobile home park mortgage and probably package it up with a hundred or a couple hundred million dollars worth of other mortgages, not necessarily on mobile home parks. They'll then have this big diversified pool stream of income from, yes, our little mobile home park, from a bigger office tower, from somebody's self-storage, from somebody else's shopping mall, what have you. They aggregate all these mortgages and they sell them off. Unlike dealing with a bank where there's one person that's written you your mortgage and you know if you need to renegotiate, you can go to the bank. With CMBS, there is nobody on the other side of the transaction anymore. Your mortgage, again, gets sold off. You just have to pay it pay your mortgage off to a lockbox, basically to a specific, say, trust company that then pays out all of those investors. Take me back to the beginning. So you're working in San Francisco and the light bulb goes off and you're like, I'm going to buy a mobile home park in Oklahoma. Like, <laughs> where did that come from? What did that look like? It didn't happen quite like that. But as I say, Nick, you know, when I woke up from the concussion, buying a mobile home park in Ohio, in Oklahoma, just seemed like a good idea. Yeah. But no, so I was working for most of my 30s, for about a decade, working at various different startups. A couple of them got bought, but none of them quite became Google. So I, I went through the dot-com boom and bust and just decided really that I was going to do value investing and not do high-tech, biotech, solar tech, silly tech investing. So I did that both in the stock market and then just started thinking, hey, I should diversify out of the stock market and buy some value real estate and thought initially that I would buy an apartment building. So I was on LoopNet and would just filter down to multifamily properties as opposed to retail or office or any of the other categories. And I was not looking in the Bay Area. I knew I was going to have to be buying real estate in the greater Midwest to get cash flow. Okay. So I'd just be looking in, you know, Peoria, Illinois, and there'd be 99 apartment buildings at an eight cap, which means basically an 8% unlevered yield, like a bond yield. And then there'd be like one mobile home park at an 11 cap yielding much more money. And I thought, that's absurd. I'm not buying a friggin' trailer park. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'd delete the search and I'd do the next search in Lubbock, Texas or Omaha, Nebraska or Ames, Iowa. And I'd probably be embarrassed to tell you how many times I had to get hit over the head. But maybe after five or 10 times of seeing this quirky little asset popping up within the broader collection of multifamily properties, I finally thought, well, yeah. you know, why don't I look into it? If they're really that much more profitable, I mean, why wouldn't I do it? Let me see if there's something really weird about them, and there isn't. But I, I just started looking then and, and just went to a seminar and read some books and put the word out to friends and family and kind of built up an unofficial advisory board of about 10 guys that were all park owners. And I just started running deals by them for about a, a little over a year. Okay, okay. And they would shoot down some of the deals and they would not shoot down others and some of the deals, they'd have one particular key question, piece of diligence for me to go after. 
it varied, but that kind of back and forth with experienced investors really helped me hone my thinking. And it took about 17 months, that whole process, before I closed on my first property. But again, after 17 months, then I had closed on my first park, then went on, did some consulting, then bought a second park, and then formed Park Street Partners with my partner, Brad Johnson, uh, about three and a half years ago. Well, typically your cap rate, your yield is like commensurate with your risk. And so it's like, if it's consistently more profitable on paper, theoretically there should be riskier, or is it just the stigma of the mobile home park? Like why, why do you think they were yielding better than other multifamily properties? A couple of things. Part of it, you could call it stigma. That really goes part and parcel with this also being very, very much a niche. My best guesstimate is that there are about 1,000 mobile home parks that sell every year for, let's just say, a million dollars per park. Okay. So 1,000 times a million is a billion. There's about a billion dollars worth of mobile home parks that change hands every year. That, although it certainly would max out my credit card, <laughs> but by Wall Street standards, a billion dollars is nothing. Right. They're not getting excited about that. Yeah. There are, I think, 100 billion or 200 billion worth of apartments bought and sold every year. And I think even more single family homes. It just seems that everybody is doing something else. And it's like a, a self-reinforcing feedback loop, you know? The big investors go to their fancy country clubs and everybody's talking about which apartment fund they're in. And then they just want to invest in what their buddies are doing because they heard about it at the country club. Yeah, <laughs> Nobody's talking about this niche. It's something you really have to be looking for. Just the fact that it's not on the tip of everybody's tongue and it's not what the herd is doing means that this really isn't what the smart money is chasing. And the really, really big Wall Street smart money really can't chase it, again, because it's such a small niche. But family offices, high net worth individuals, folks that might be investing 50000 up to, say, maybe even $10 million, those folks generally aren't, again, talking about this with their other peers yet. Anyway, the feedback loop that tells them, oh, yeah, everybody's doing mobile home park deals. I got to get in that. Yeah, not a sexy niche. So it's, it's just a quirky little, yeah, quirky, unsexy little niche. It's overlooked. All right. Well, that, that was a long tangent from the test ad piece at the beginning. Yeah. Sorry, Nick. Everything from me is a long tangent. <laughs> no, this is, this is I'm like, I'm taking notes. This is fascinating stuff. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. 
so as you're kind of penciling out this deal, you're looking at the projected returns and the lot rent and all this stuff, what were the test ads for? Okay, yeah. So the test ads really help you validate that there's demand. So this is a fairly simple ad. We'll put it on Craigslist, sometimes in newspapers. It would basically just say, like, you put the town name there. If you're buying in Tulsa, Oklahoma, maybe you put a specific place like Broken Arrow. We own a park in that suburb of, of Tulsa. It's like, you know, Broken Arrow, three-bedroom mobile homes from say 600 a month rent or rent to own, and then you include the phone number. It's a fairly simple ad. And then again, something similar again, both between Craigslist and a newspaper ad. And then you just count up the responses. Basically in a week, we wanna see about 20 responses. We rarely get 20. We'll either get three or five, in which case we drop it, or we'll typically get 30, sometimes even 50 responses. And again, then we know there's really great demand. We will be able to bring in mobile homes and get them sold. And or if there are any abandoned homes that come with the property, we're confident then that we'll be able to fix them up and get those sold. Okay. So that's the purpose of the test ad. And those are the rough metrics that we look for. So you're kind of saying, okay, irrelevant to how many occupants are here today, irrelevant of the rent that we're collecting today, is there demand for other people to live here? Exactly. Okay. What's it look like to manage this thing from across the country? Like, would you got to hire somebody to be on site or is it just like, oh, we'll let the, we'll let nature take its course. We'll let the community manage itself. Like, how does that work? Almost all of our parks have got an on-site manager. We'll look to find someone that lives in the community in their own home, one of those typically 90% or greater percent of the homes that are owned by the residents, not by us. And we'll just look for somebody that's got one of the better quality homes in the community or better kept. That's a better term. Okay. It doesn't have to be the newest home, but we're looking for somebody that's painted their home and cuts their grass and does not have either a front lawn full of kitty toys or daddy toys, you know, car parts and transmission bits strewn about. Sure, sure. We want somebody running our community that shows pride of ownership. That's an, an ideal candidate to run the park. And obviously they then will enforce the park rules and help make sure everyone else cleans up their front yard, mows their lawn, et cetera. So virtually all the parks, again, have an on-site manager. That person collects all the rent and will take care of minor, lower dollar, basically three-figure expenses. That would be calling a plumber for 150 bucks to come do a sewer unstop, call someone else for 400 bucks to come and mow. That's sort of roughly three-figure decision-making. And of course, collecting all the rents, which are also a three-figure issue. That's what our managers deal with. We then have an asset manager that oversees those managers make sure they're doing their jobs. And that asset manager then takes care of four and five figure decisions, really reinvestment back into the communities. For instance, when one of those homes goes abandoned, our asset manager will decide, you know, are we going to spend 3,500 bucks fixing up that house? Or are we going to make it really nice and spend five grand? So obviously that's a four-figure decision. Or, hey, 
this park finally needs to be repaved. Is it going to be a sixty or $65,000 expense? That's obviously a five-figure decision. But all four and five-figure decisions are made by our asset manager. Okay. If it ever got up into six figures, that would come to Brad or myself. We handle six-figure decisions, mostly seven-figure decisions, which are making then acquisitions. So we tend not to manage the parks at any lower level. We've got that delegated down to the asset manager or right down to the on-site manager. Yeah. What uh, Have you ever had any disasters or like crazy unforeseen risks? Like what's the downside to some of this stuff? The biggest problem, which I experienced with my own personal portfolio, this is not something with investor money, but my first park came with a sewage lagoon. So that's a private sewer. That sounds delightful. (laughs) It failed, even though I had in writing a letter from the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality that it had been constructed to code. It, in fact, was not constructed to code. And the fact that the DEQ said they had inspected it and it was built to code just didn't mean anything. Sure. <laughs> I had to go and spend, it was almost, it was about 500000 to get that lagoon made right. Otherwise, my 60-some-odd tenants, we would have had to have closed the park. That would have been a loss for me, obviously. And it would have meant evicting 60-some-odd families. Holy crap, a half a million dollar unexpected expense? That'll put a kink in your numbers. Yes, it will. Now, fortunately, I bought that park. I don't think I would do it again. But the saving grace for that park is that, again, it had been mismanaged. So we put up a website. I market it better. Lot rents were, at the time, about 50% below market 10 years ago. The lot rents have now fully doubled, a little over doubled now over the last 10 years. And our occupancy, I bought and brought in a lot of homes. So the occupancy is about 50% higher. Okay. So two times 1.5 is three. That park is grossing about three times as much money as it did when I bought it a decade ago. So there's a good amount of cash flow to help pay down. And I also had to borrow some from a bank, but there's a good amount of cash flow still, even after that whoopsie. But my advice for first time <laughs> buyers is stick with a park on city water and city sewer so you don't have any unexpected expenses. Yeah, no kidding. That's, (laughs) I can imagine that was not a fun period of time for you. No, it was not. What about, because it's still looking at some pretty significant upfront capital to get involved with this. What about buying individual mobile homes? Has that ever crossed the radar? So one of the things that makes this such a neat niche is that the on-ramp is relatively easy and gradual. You don't have to come up with six figures for a down payment and buy the whole park. I know one guy who did get started just buying individual mobile homes. He fixed them up and he then put them out on rent-to-own agreements. Now, this requires that you have the right landlord partnership I think he both got a month or two free lot rent while he was investing, say, a couple thousand into the homes and was probably doing a fair amount of the labor himself. But then for low four-figure investments, a couple thousand bucks, he creates for himself and for that landlord each, say, an income stream of 250 a month. So done right. You're going to get all your money back, say, in a year. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic 
yeah, presumably the tenant keeps paying and maybe it's a three-year, four-year rent-to-own agreement. And so then you've still got another couple of years of just significant payments coming in. Okay. We advise getting into the business. We advise, if at all possible, own the land. But again, you can cut your teeth buying the mobile homes and improving them. And then that's the hardest part of the business. If you can do that, then buying the land will be a cakewalk. <laughs> so we always, again, encourage folks, at least for the long run, not to own homes, really get to the land part as fast as you can. But even with that, there are parks out there for a hundred grand, might be a five space park, something small, but potentially then for say 20, 30 grand down, you get a mortgage or you get seller carry. So again, you can still get in, you can still own an actual small park yeah. for a five figure investment and work your way up. And if it comes with a couple of houses that need rehabbing, hey, you've already got that nailed. You rehab a couple houses, you've got higher cash flow, you can refi, pull your money out, and now go buy a second park. That's really the name of the game. Yeah, it's such a such an interesting niche in the real estate world that I never even heard of, never even considered. It's really appreciate you sharing all the the details. Yeah, sure. Behind it. And and it sounds like you've kind of opened up, you say, "Hey, I found something. I stumbled upon something that is pretty lucrative here." And to scale it, you brought in, so you mentioned a couple of times like your money and then investor money. So you're bringing in outside investment to kind of scale this operation. Yeah, we've raised now a total of, I believe, around $19 million. Wow. Again, we've bought, we haven't yet invested all that. We're still closing on another couple of parks, but we've then borrowed roughly another $30 million from banks, from sellers, and from CMBS. So again, we've bought now around $50 million worth of property and got a couple more to close on, I think even before Thanksgiving. And then we'll be raising our next fund and, and obviously raising equity capital. We'll go out and raise some debt capital as the deals come in, and we will be buying more parks throughout 2018. Okay. So this is at parkstreetpartners.com. Yes. If you want to check out some of Jefferson's funds. The next fund that's opening up uh, here shortly, it's uh, what's, what's the minimum investment on that? 50000 Okay. 50000 and open to accredited investors only, yes? That's correct. Okay. And Nick, the key question you didn't ask is what's the maximum investment? <laughs> what's the maximum? Well, that's not relevant to me. <laughs> the, the most somebody could invest would be, I think, twenty million. We'll see what we cap it at. So we'll take I it. like to I like to think big. <laughs> Fair enough. What's the maximum investment? See if we, well, if you can go find out more of those, basically trying to take more of that thousand park turnover every year and build up the market share on that. Yeah, we'll probably buy fifteen parks, maybe twenty parks with that money. So yeah, as a percentage of all the thousand some odd parks out there, we're buying a small fraction, but so far it's been, we think the right fraction of, of well-priced parks with good infrastructure. And we've been able to generate roughly 11% cash on cash back to our investors. And that's before any appreciation. So as we eventually sell or refi, there, there should be significantly more returns back to our investors probably getting them up into a, who knows, 17, 18, maybe 20% IRR. But the bulk of that's paid out in cash quarterly. 
Well, they're pretty happy about that, I bet. Yeah, they're cashing our checks. No complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Again, Jefferson Lilly from ParkStreetPartners.com. Thank you so much for joining me. You can check out the Mobile Home Park Investors podcast. If you want to learn even more about this, the 80 episodes deep into the show so far at MobileHomeParkInvestors.com. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Hire ahead of the curve. <laughs> Get the right people in place before you need them to do accounting and property management and marketing and whatnot. Hire ahead of the curve. That's my number one tip. Jefferson, very good. Thank you so much. We'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Nick. This edition of The Side Hustle Show is brought to you by FreshBooks.com. Because I've seen it. Those books aren't going to stay fresh on their own. When it comes time to get paid, think FreshBooks. I remember my first freelance writing assignment and my editor finally approving my draft. And she says, okay, send over the invoice. I'm like, yes. Now, thankfully, she also included a link to FreshBooks in that email. And hopefully it was her affiliate link explaining, look, this is the tool that almost all my writers use and you're going to pay lower fees with it. So I signed on up and I've actually been a customer ever since. So what's FreshBooks about? It's an award-winning cloud accounting system that gives you an organized and professional way to keep your paperwork in check without spending a ton of time. In addition to invoicing, they've got time tracking and expense management tools built right in, and the handy FreshBooks mobile app works wherever you do. See how the all-new FreshBooks can save you time dealing with your paperwork so you can go out there and spend more time making your hustle happen. Visit freshbooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30-day free trial today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle and enter the side hustle show in the how did you hear about us section. All right, my top takeaways from this chat with Jefferson, number one, do the thing that other people don't want to do. Whether it's the mobile home stigma or just the asset class flying below the radar of institutional investors, there's something to that, doing the thing that other people don't want to do. I was kind of surprised to hear that the supply of these parks is shrinking because I think there are a few factors that could actually increase the demand in uh, the years and maybe decades to come. The first is a crunch on the supply of affordable housing, at least in my area. That's a huge issue. And the second is the trend toward tiny houses or you know well thought out smaller living spaces. So who knows? Maybe we see a resurgence in mobile home parks. But in the meantime, the restricted supply, I think, puts owners in, uh, in a pretty strong position. But do the thing that other people don't want to do. I'm probably going to butcher the Edison quote, but you know, people miss opportunities because they're dressed in overalls and they look like work, right? Uh, takeaway number two is to do your due diligence. That means beyond just looking at the numbers, but actually looking at the property itself to see what kind of improvements could you make. Is this ROI pencil out even greater if we can increase the occupancy, if we can increase the cash flow? And the second thing, second part of that is to make sure you're on the city water, a half million dollar sewer lagoon fix. Not awesome. Takeaway number three, talk to other park owners. It sounds like Jefferson spent almost a year and a half kind of in uh, research mode during uh, during which he built up a little brain trust of other investors that he could run prospective deals by. Anytime you're making a big investment, especially uh, an out-of-state investment with other families as stakeholders, like those trusted advisors can really help give you the confidence to move forward or to say, hey, look, that's not a great deal. So be sure to hit up sidehustlenation.com slash Jefferson to download the free PDF highlight reel with all of Jefferson's top tips from this episode. And uh, you should be able to access that from the episode description in your podcast player app as well. But that's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show where you'll meet three YouTubers. We're doing a little roundtable episode and learn how they've grown and monetized their video content in some pretty impressive ways. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com. 